Welcome back to Dalla, New Histories of the Medieval Middle East, brought to you by the postdoctoral researchers of the Mamlukization of the Mamluk Sultanate Project at Ghent University in Belgium. You can now find our podcast on all major podcast platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. If you haven't already, please subscribe, comment, and spread the word. My name is Mustafa Bannister, and thank you for tuning into our fourth episode. In recent episodes, we've been introducing you to our project, as well as the authors we work on. If you listened to our last two episodes, you may have already heard discussions of late medieval Arabic authors and historians like Ibn Arabshah and Ibn Tagrabirdi. Today, we'll be talking about Burhan al-Din al-Bakai with our own Kenneth Gowdy, who's now taking his turn to discuss al-Bakai's life and scholarly work. Kenneth Gowdy, welcome to Dalla. Thank you very much. It's uh, very strange to be on this side of the <laughs> this side of the microphone. Well, let's start with the obligatory how did you get here question. Now, you're actually a historian of the Crusading period. What was your earlier research about and what led you to the 15th century Syro-Egyptian territories of the Sultanate of Cairo? My PhD research was on jihad ideology in 12th century Syria. So effectively, what I was interested in was how and in what ways the ideology of jihad developed and what approaches scholars took to try and encourage the co-religionists to fight back. And one of the things that I was interested in was the issue of identity formation. And my, my supervisor, he told me about this new project that his friend, Jovan Steinberg, was organizing again. And it looked really interesting, the big ideas that we're exploring here about how historiography can create social and political order. It really seemed to strike a chord with my interest in identity formation. My, my goal was to understand whether and to what extent Syrian historians played a role in creating the idea of the Mamluk Sultanate. My hypothesis was that maybe, given how far away from Cairo they actually were, they would have writ- perhaps written a different history and engaged with the Sultanate in ways that diverged from their Cairoan counterparts. So when I started here, you suggested that I narrow the focus down to focus on one historian from Syria, Al-Bukai. And his reasoning was that there had been a little bit of work done already on Al-Bukai as a historian by Liguo, and that this might be an interesting place for me to start my research. Can you tell us a little bit about Al-Bukai? Who was he in a nutshell? I mean, if we can even answer that 540 years later. My usual sort of pitch for him is that Burhan al-Din al-Bikai was a historian and Quran exegete active in 15th century Cairo. He was born in the village of Hurbat Ruha in the Anti-Lebanon Mountains in 1406, but he moved at a young age to Damascus before eventually settling in Cairo. In Cairo, he became a student of Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, and it was through Ibn Hajar's patronage that Al-Bikai was appointed to read the Sahih al-Bukhari to Sultan Jatmak, and also he was appointed the resident Quran exegete at the Zahiriya Mosque. Later, at some point, he seems to become a confidant of Sultan Inal. In terms of what he's best known for in modern scholarship, he's, in, he's known for three controversies that he became involved in. The first of these controversies was on the use of the Bible in Quranic exegesis. The second was on the, the poetry of Ibn al-Farid. And the final one was on the theodicy of al-Ghazali. These three controversies defined the downward trajectory of his later career from 1464 until his death in 1480. It seems like he was getting into a lot of trouble. Would you, would you say he was kind of a, a rabble-rouser or a troublemaker? It's an interesting question. Modern scholarship tends to assume that he was an angry man. He has his reputation for being quite angry, being quite short with his contemporaries. The problem with this is that most of that work, which has 
given us this impression of him being a very controversial figure, is based on the writings of his opponents, particularly a Sakhawi, mm-hmm. who doesn't pull any punches when he tells us about Al-Bikai, but who he was. He likes to describe Al-Bikai as the master of disorder. You know, he is this sort of force who just comes in and just screws everything up. And when we look at the controversies as well, it, I don't know how how different he is from other people in the 15th century. We have to remember that it is very competitive, right? Like, mm-hmm. people are fighting and struggling to get positions. And there are frequent sort of rotations of people, uh, of the civilian elites, of the bureaucrats. They keep falling in and out of favour. And everyone's just trying to get that, that edge that gets them into position of stability. Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up a Safawi, uh, a Safawi's biography of, of a Bukai. I think early on in the project, we all sort of realized that Safawi was somebody who knew all of our authors and who wrote entries about all of them. But I think he was especially handed out for al-Bakai, as you say. What do you think was was kind of the main issue that was under underneath all of this dislike for al-Bakai? I think Safawi's dislike of al-Bakai stems from two things. So you've got to remember Al-Bikai's background. He's not from Cairo. He's from a very small village, a small peasant village. He doesn't have an illustrious background. And Sahawi makes it very clear at the beginning of the biography of Al-Bikai that he doesn't really approve of this. Firstly, what he does is he tells us about how shockingly bad Al-Bikai's pronunciation of Arabic is. He lays it on quite thickly that he was a very... he he. His speech was garbled, essentially, that nobody could really understand him. Elbikai himself is aware of the fact that he doesn't speak this sort of polished Arabic of the metropolitan elite in Cairo. So on the one hand, I think Sahawi doesn't like this upstart. On the other hand, we have to remember that both Elbikai and Sahawi were students of Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. Now, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani is, without wanting to go into too much detail about who he was, he was essentially an institution unto himself, right? He was so important that scholars would fight for the opportunity to be associated with him. I think that he was actually one of the key reasons why Abikai and Asakawi didn't like each other. They were both trying, I think, to, in a way, claim the legacy and the authority of Ibn Hajar for themselves. We can perhaps also think about their personalities. I mean, Abikai is fairly abrasive, even in his in his chronicle writings and things like that. He's quite eager to be right and to hmm. demonstrate the correctness of his information and his knowledge. And Sakawi as well, I think it's he's he is well known for his Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> the um, his vitriol. Yeah, his vitriol. Yeah. That's a nice way of putting it. I think that's gotta be an element of uh, why we think of Alakai is this angry, angry man. So how do we know about his life? What are our major sources on his, his life and his early life? So I've already mentioned the biography by Asakawi, which has kind of formed the basis of what most most modern scholars have said about him. But we can supplement Sakhawi's biography with Albikai's own writings about his life. In my research, the my major source has been, particularly for his early life, has been a short autobiography that he wrote and which is contained within his Unwan Zaman Bitaraj Mashur Walakran. This is a biographical dictionary. Basically, it's an alphabetically arranged collection of biographies and this one happens to focus on his teachers, his sheikhs and his peers, the Akran. We also have elements from within his chronicle, the Izar al where he talks as well about goings on in his own life. So with these sources together, we can start building an understanding of how he how he thought about himself and about his own life 
Most of my work so far has focused on the autobiography and the first part of this autobiography was written in 1437. This is the year just before he received his first appointments as Sultan Jakhmak's Hadith teacher and as the resident Quran exegete. When, when was he born? Uh, 1406. So he would have been in his 30s? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so he's writing this at about 32 years old, okay. thereabouts, and it covers his life up to that point. He adds some subsequent notes concerning the years 1433 4, 1439, and 1441 too, as well. Now, it's fairly unusual for a scholar in this period to write an autobiography at such a young age. And this, I think, goes some way to telling us something about Albuquerque's character. He's a little egotistical. <laughs> and this autobiography has more recently been discussed. But for other scholars, Albuquerque's early life is more important as a context for discussion of his later life than as an object of study in its own right. So I spent a lot of time working on it and trying to get a handle on how he thought about his life leading up to his sort of successful entrance into, onto the stage in Cairo. Mm -hmm. So why would you say he was sort of at pains to prove that he had come from a humble background? It's an odd one. It's not unusual for scholars in this period to talk about their lineage as lineage was one of the markers of social status and prestige, and it was one of the ways in which membership of the intellectual elite was both recognised and reproduced. But what's curious is why Albuquerque decides to include this information. It's very useful from a modern perspective for my work because it gives me the ability to try and reconstruct how he understood his own genealogy and the geographical range of his extended kin group. But writing it down makes all of the fuzziness and the absences in his genealogical record highly visible to everybody. What Alvikai ends up doing when he tells us about his lineage is drawing attention to the fact that it's categorically not illustrious, and it could not therefore have served to highlight his social status. My theory is that he's going to such lengths to provide any and all information that he can about his lineage because he's aware of how limited his knowledge was, but also that he was aware of how valuable lineage could be so he's including everything that he does know to demonstrate that, okay, he may have come from a peasant background, but he's not completely ignorant. He does know something about his background and who he comes from. He's not just someone off the street with no pedigree whatsoever. Of all the historians that are covered by our project, El Bikai is actually the youngest one. And he's part of sort of the second generation of scholars mm -hmm. yeah. that we're looking at. Uh, he, he was sort of too young to have to deal with the problems that erupted right after the invasion of, of Tamerlane and also with the uh, sort of the breakdown of the, the everything with the raid of Nasser Faraj and the way that it ended. But, you know, just like anyone else in this in this highly competitive atmosphere, he would have had to worry about reinventing himself with the creation of new uh, of every new court and every new political order. Uh, did he have any particular strategies for, for how to do that? That's a good question. As far as I can tell, he had one strategy that he seems to have liked using, which is to try and associate himself with patrons. He's seemingly not trying to build his own independent power base or anything like that. He's not. He's just trying to associate himself with different courts and to manage that transition uh, from court to court or for political order to political order. Essentially, he manages to keep official positions with two different political orders. On the one hand, he begins his career in Sultan Jakhmak's reign. And he held this position for what seems like about a decade, but the evidence is shaky on whether the relationship was particularly close. The only information about their relationship which survives is found in Albuquerque's Isar al-Asr, and that begins in 1451. 
this is about four years after Albikai gets into a, a little bit of a controversy. We don't exactly know what happens, why it happens. Four years earlier, he was stripped of his position as Jack Max Hadith teacher. He was imprisoned and ostensibly sent into exile. Consequently, there was no love lost for Albikai when it comes to Sultan Jack Mack, whom he is highly critical of in the Israel Asif. Now, we don't really know why the relationship fell apart. We don't really know how good the relationship was. My thinking is that Albikai found himself on the wrong side of one of the sort of frequent purges that seemed to yeah. be endemic in Jack Mack's reign towards the end of it. Ironically, well, strangely enough, Albikai's standing does seem to have improved a little bit in the last days of Sultan Jakmak's reign. At some point in January 1453, this is when Jakmak's health is rapidly deteriorating mm -hmm. and rumours are spreading that he had already died, Al-Bikai was appointed to teach the Ilnokirat at the Mu'ayyidiyah Mosque in place of the position he had lost. So, in short, at the end of Jakmak's reign, he gets another official appointment. Whether he was appointed by the ailing Sultan or whether his appointment was due to shifting balances in the court of Jakmak is unclear. But the most important thing we know about what happened for him at, so, uh, at his time at Jack Mack's court was that Al-Bikai seems to have met Inal, the powerful Amir al-Kabir, and had entered into his circle. But we don't actually know when they got to know each other. Like We can't pinpoint an exact date. It's, it's very fuzzy, essentially, when this happens. But his relationship with Inal is, is beneficial. This seems to be a period when Al-Bikai enjoys stability in his life. He refers to Inal as his sahib, his patron, his master. And it was after Inal took the throne that Al-Bikai was returned to his position as the Quran exegete at the Zahiriya Mosque. And it was likely, although a little uncertain, that it was also during Inal's reign that he, that he was appointed to teach at the Jarfiya Madrasa and that he was also appointed as the Nazar of the Fakahin Mosque. And both of these positions he would step down from in 1464, which is the same year that he seems to have been removed from his teaching position as Mudaris at the Mu'ayyidiyah Mosque. Beyond this, Bukai operated on behalf of Inal. He spent considerable time in Damascus on his behalf at an endowment there, getting it organised and arranged. He tells us that he was Inal's secretary and he seems to have furthermore tied himself into Inal's court life. He develops a very close relationship with one of Inal's sons-in-law, Berdibak al-Kabrusi. When Inal dies, Al-Bikai is quite quick to start trying to lay the groundwork with Inal's son, with Ahmed ibn Inal. At the, at the beginning of March 1461, Al-Bikai went to the new sultan to congratulate him on his uh, Accession. And about a month later, in April 1461, he recites to the Sultan Panegyric, which he had composed. But all this comes to nothing because Ahmed is deposed quite quickly afterwards by Khushkadam. So there's sort of question marks over Ahmed ibn Inal's reign and what exactly he was hoping to do. He ruled for four months. And in four months, there seems to have been a concerted effort on his part to try and increase the size of his familial holdings. So his father had already built quite considerable portfolio of investments and properties. And what seems to have happened is that Ahmed continues adding to this during these four months. You could perhaps see that this is, this, this is on the one hand, he's trying to secure his position by increasing his wealth and his sort of potential resources. Or on the other hand, he recognizes that his time as Sultan is limited 
and that this is about securing the prosperity of the family going on. Uh, well, you, you, you hit on the idea of, of the patron and the client relationships of Al-Bakai, particularly the, you know, the idea of Sahib or, or Sohba. Uh, just if we could rewind a little bit and talk about his Sahib or his patron before Inal, who was actually Ibn Hajar al-Sqalani, who you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship and, and, and just, uh, just briefly comment on the nature of that, of that cultural practice uh, in, in general in, in terms of the, the, the client-patron relationship? Al-Bikai does seem to have enjoyed a close relationship with Ibn Hajar. Throughout his biography of Ibn Hajar, Al-Bikai frequently states that he would attend Ibn Hajar. The verb he uses is lazma, which means to adhere, to accompany, to be inseparable from. And what it suggests is the continuous, close, physical proximity of a follower to a more powerful man. The junior party in such a relationship is usually denoted by the term mulazm, which we can probably think of as meaning disciple. And Al-Bikai describes himself as such and states that he continued in this role until at least 1442, and that's the year in which he wrote the biography. Now, the term denoting this type of personal attendance, mulazma, expressed the ties between favoured young people and their sheikhs, and it's often conflated with the related term suhbah. And while suhbah is often understood as meaning companionship or fellowship, its meaning and usages were much wider, and it could range from companionship to affiliation to a group, to the subordination of an individual to a more powerful individual. And it implies obligations and attendance of one person on the other. In the context of a scholarly environment like Ibn Hajj and Al-Bikai's relationship, it was through the suhbah of a single sheikh and his disciples that young people could become sheikhs in their own right. The nature of these relationships has been schematically defined by Conrad Herschler, who has highlighted four key features. Firstly, these relationships were hierarchical, formal, mutually exclusive, and advantageous. Thus, the socially weaker partner accompanies the socially stronger partner in a relationship that was not only stable, but which had been explicitly established. At the same time, his second of his four points, the relationship would typically be exclusive, especially on the part of the junior party. Where the more senior partner might entertain multiple suhba relationships, especially when there is a particularly large social gulf, uh, the socially weaker partner would usually only have one of these relationships when it's formalized. And then, and then when that patron dies, he's got to look for another one. Yeah, pretty much exactly that, yeah. And finally, and most importantly, both members of the relationship expected to benefit in some way from their association. And, and so the kinds of, of, I guess, benefits or resources that are available would have been different if you're talking about a religious patron versus a political patron. Yeah, definitely. Although they, they were definitely offered benefits in different directions, if that makes sense. So on the one hand, Al-Bakai's political benefits coming out of these relationships were the same for Ibn Hajar and for Inal. In both cases, he is able through these relationships to achieve official positions and gain salary. That is, I think, the clearest common ground between the two of these. But when it comes to his relationship with Ibn Hajar, and Ibn Hajar, as I've said, was such an important figure in the scholarly environment that Al-Bikai was able to garner additional social benefits from this relationship. Obviously, there's the prestige of being Ibn Hajar's student, but on a more practical level, it seems like Ibn Hajar played a crucial role in Al-Bikai's marriage to Fatima bint Muhammad. This was his first marriage, and Fatima was part of an aspirational local family. She was, like Al-Bikai, an immigrant to Cairo. The family made its money in the perfume trade, 
and they were also well regarded. For instance, Fatima's great-grandfather was highly regarded and seems to have had some sort of connection with an unnamed member of the military elite. And her grandfather was counted amongst the most reputable men of the country, as too was her father. This is a good match for Al-Bakai. So if we look at the younger son, um, he was making a good case for his own social advancement on the basis of his intellect and a network of scholarly and, and administrative contacts, contacts who would themselves go on to prominence. This network included at its heart Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, and I think that this suggests that it was on the basis of personal links between Fatima's brothers and al-Bakai, which were mediated through Ibn Hajar, that the marriage was actually arranged. I find it difficult to explain otherwise how this, or why this good local family, which was evidently well-respected and successful, would have accepted Al-Bakai as a son-in-law. He was a penniless immigrant, and whose only claim to fame or any claim to prominence was his association with Ibn Hajar. So what can you say about who might have been reading Al-Bakai's text, or, or who he might have been writing these historical works for, or, or who he had in mind? So he, he writes a number of historical texts, but the two that I'm interested in are his Anonas Amanda biographical dictionary, and the other is his chronicle, the Israel Asr. When it comes to the Alman as a man, I think that he's writing this, well, his purpose in writing this is to demonstrate that he belongs within the intellectual elite of Cairo. He writes himself into this biographical collection alongside all of his prominent teachers. And he begins the work by essentially outlining why he's doing it. He's telling us that he's doing this because he's very interested in Hadith, and he knows that for Hadith studies, you need to know the qualities of, of, of the transmitters. And I feel like this work is perhaps one of, the, one of those works, at least, where he intended it to be sort of a statement of his abilities, of his, of his uh, right to be part of the community. In terms of people who are actually reading it, it was circulating, and there are multiple copies that still survive. Most of them are later. But we do, for instance, that Sakhawi was reading it, uh, how he actually quotes from it, and uh, yeah, and he was hate reading it. Yeah, pretty much. He looked himself up. He explicitly tells us that he looked himself up in the work. Yeah, he googled himself. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and, and so it does seem to have had some sort of circulation, at least. I don't know. I don't know how widely circulating it was. Sakawi at least was was aware of it, but that may simply be because he was you know, he was so focused on trying to destroy Albuquerque's reputation that he was reading everything he could possibly get his hands on mm -hmm. in an effort to discredit his, his rival, who was already dead by this point. So I don't think that's a very satisfying answer who was actually reading it, but I think he was intending it to be read by his peers, that he wanted people to read this text and think, yes, we can accept Albuquerque as a member of the elite. For the Israel Asser, that one is sort of an open question. Again, he's, he's telling us that he's writing this work, to continue Ibn Hajar's chronicle writing activities. But the work is fundamentally different. It's, it's organised in a completely different way. And it has been described by Li Guo as having more diary-like characteristic, right. uh, uh, having a more diary character, in the sense that it's that Li Guo thinks that it has been written originally as Albuquerque trying to just keep a record of what he's been teaching and what he's been doing. And it's his own personal record, perhaps not White, supposed to be widely circulated. And it doesn't seem to have circulated particularly widely. There aren't particularly many manuscripts of it. There are no clean copies of it, so no presentation copies were made for anyone. It's still very rough. But there are sort of 
marginalia and marginal notations in the manuscript where people will say, why would you say such a thing? Uh, because you're being horrible about that person. There is sort of a running commentary that it has been read, but it doesn't seem to have been particularly well regarded, or at the very least people weren't aware of it. So so for somebody who hasn't read the Ishar in particular, um, you know, when we look at other contemporary works that cover the court of Inal, or then, you know, sort of the late, late court of Jack Mack, like Ibn Taqra Birdi, so mm. you, you, you've read that and you've been yeah. able to look at it. Could you say that Al-Bikahi brings anything you know, unique that somebody who hasn't read him, who's interested in doing research on this period, would get out of reading Al-Bakai. So I think, on the one hand, yes, you do get the, the more diary-like elements in there. So Ligo has, has written uh, about uh, what Al-Bakai reveals about his personal life, about the politics between his wife and his concubines, about the deaths of his children. So you do get sort of an interesting insight into the personal life of one of our scholars. Our scholars are generally speaking, not very interested in talking about their feelings and their emotions and what's really happening in their day-to-day life. So he, he puts a lot of first-person... Yeah, there's, there's a fair amount there. I don't want to like, overstress it. This material is in there, but it is a chronicle in format, essentially. It's an analytic chronicle progressing day by day, month by month, year by year. And it's covers, it covers the period between 1451 and 1466. That is... It, begins at the tail end of Jack Mack's reign through Inal's reign and concluding with the reign of Khushkada. It's it's valuable essentially because it's another perspective. That's the most important thing we can say about it, in the sense that when it comes to this period of the 15th century, we generally rely on Ibn Taqdaburdi. We don't have many contemporary voices that talk about this period. So Abhikai is useful because he is another voice. He, he comes from a different perspective. On a more specific level, he's, he's interesting to read because he also differs quite considerably from Ibn Taqlaberdi. He offers substantially more detail and more stories than Ibn Taqlaberdi does. So there's just more information. But significantly as well, he doesn't overlap with Ibn Taqlaberdi. Ibn Taqlaberdi's chronicles and Al-Bikai's Izzad, they cover the same period, but they cover it in different ways. It's, they're not working from the same sort of textual source or tradition or anything, and there's not significant amount of overlap between their works. And they were there about the same age. Did they know each other? They did. The nature of the relationship is still a little bit opaque. Albuquerque has occasionally referred to uh, Ibn Taqlaberdi as his uh, Sayyidi. There's also a reference in Sahawi as well, to Ibn Taqlaberdi helping Al-Bikai out of some difficulty. And there's also a throwaway reference to the two of them, of Ibn Taqlaberdi and Al-Bikai, I mean, talking all evening. So they didn't know each other, but I don't know how, I don't know how close we would want to characterise this relationship. Hmm. But the legal has really characterised the differences quite, quite succinctly. The stories that Al-Bikai includes are often the ones that Ibn Taqlaberdi did not tell. Um, are the ones that are drawn from the sources that Ibn Taqlaberdi did not utilize. I would suggest reading it for the personal, sort of the personal commentary that is in there from Al-Mikai. It is very different. He does contradict Ibn Taqlaberdi at points. For instance, Al-Mikai includes his own unique version of the letter that was sent to uh, the Ottomans after the uh, conquest of Constantinople. There is a lot of information in there that you just won't find it elsewhere. So I, I just want to close with uh, your thoughts on, you know, we have all of these 15th century authors and we and, and all of our colleagues and all of our colleagues all over the world are 
engaged with trying to understand who they were and what made them tick. And, and I'm just wondering if, if it is possible to, to know who they were based on what kinds of texts they wrote or reading between the lines. I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess all of them had different, as, as we all do, different aspects of our identity. And um, I don't know, is, is there a way to, to get at who they were based on the hats they wore? You're right. Most modern scholars, whenever we look at the works of a particular historian or scholar, what have you, we have a tendency to try and figure out who they were and to define them, put them in a neat category. So Al-Bikai, for instance, he's been categorized as a Hadith scholar uh, and a biographer, or he's simply a Hadith scholar, or he's a Quranic Hadith. This tendency is, I think, understandable. I think, however, the the, the point that's missing when we do this is that people can't just be reduced to a singular impulse. I'm not going to win prizes by saying that historians were focused on trying to figure out what happened, define what happened or what something meant. But we need to remember that when it comes to Al-Bakai, when we see these different impressions of him, that he was, say, a biographer or a Hadith scholar or an exegete, these are all momentary images that we gain of him. In a way, to, to, to borrow some of the ideas that are, going, that are circulating right now in modern studies of selfhood, these are temporary takeovers by one story construction with the result that other possible constructions at that moment are excluded. To put it another way, Albikai was all of these things and more, but the perspective from which we approach his life will predetermine to a certain extent which hat, be it the hat of the biographer, or the Hadith scholar or the exegete, that we'll find him wearing. Like obviously, I've done the same. At the beginning of this, I I, de- I described him as a historian and a Quran exegete. But my point is that we cannot confuse these momentary takeovers with the fact that when we read his historical works, we're reading him as a historian. We can't let that take over who Abakai was in reality. And that whatever work we read, we will read him. We will read it in the context of that genre. So it's obvious if you find if you think of him as a Quran exegete and you are reading exegesis, that makes sense. You're going to see him that way. If you're reading his Hadith scholarship, you're going to see him as a Hadith scholar. What I've been trying to do with my work all the way through is that we have to try and achieve a multi-layered representation of Al-Bakai. This is this is one that doesn't try to answer him and which embraces all of the tensions and the contradictions of how he perceived himself and was perceived in turn. Simply put, I think that when it comes to the life of Al-Bakai or any of our historians, if we let them wear all of their hats at once, we can gain deeper insight into their writings and also, I think, move closer to an understanding, not a solution, but an understanding of the historical Al-Bakai or the historical whoever in all of their complexity and contradiction. If it's going to be relevant all the time to read a historical work with in the back of your mind, but this guy was a Hadith scholar or this guy was an exegete, it may not be fruitful. But that might also explain some of their interests. Like if you look at the 14th century circle of Syrian historians, uh, Dahabi and Birzali and Jazri, they're, they're, they're very much interested in, you know, religious stories and, and think, you know, like the, the, the trial of Taimiyah or, or whatever. It's just, yeah, I, th- I think who you are also, you know, contributes to what you're interested in. Exactly, yeah. So trying to, trying to understand someone in the broadest possible base instead of just saying Mikai historian or Ibn Hajar historian or Ibn Hajar historian, which would, if we think about them more broadly, we will gain a better understanding of who they were and why they wrote the text that they wrote and how their texts actually work. We won't miss things. 
All right. Well, that's definitely something to think about as, as we go forward. So it just it just remains for me to, to say thank you for being on Dalla today, Kenneth. Thank you very much. It and, was a pleasure. And we'll we'll see you next time. <laughs>